Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. Today on the show, we examine how the post-9-11 wars affect America's relationship with its military. Two decades of counterterrorism operations around the globe. What have those meant for how we think about the use of force, about military service, and about those who serve? And how do those who served in these wars, like me, think about the people who sent them to fight? And what does all of this mean for accountability? Up next on Thank You For Your Service. We want to start with this question. How do civilians who didn't experience these wars firsthand learn more about them? One of the ways is through stories. That story just kind of came from this instinct to want to show a different side of the war. And Elliot Ackerman is a novelist and a journalist. He also served in the Marine Corps for eight years, including in Afghanistan. Alice and I talked to him about his writing over Skype in April. We began by asking Elliot who he writes for. He first said that he writes the kind of books he likes to read, that it's a personal thing. But then he said this. When my Folks come out into the world and people are engaging with them. What is oftentimes the most rewarding for me will be when someone will come up to me who has no connection to these issues, who's never been to Afghanistan or to Syria or had any of those types of experiences. But then, you know, it tells me that like the book really reached them in a way. This idea of connection, of helping people imagine each other's experiences, it's central to Ackerman's writing. In American society, we still talk about all the ways that veterans and civilians or those in the military and civilians just don't understand each other's experiences. Do you have advice or thoughts on how people who have served can better understand the views of civilians or what those in uniform can do that would help civilians understand what it's like to go to war? I think it's not that difficult for us to understand, you know, veterans versus civilians, what they've been through. I mean, you know, people will ask me, what's it like to be in a gunfight? And I've always thought about that. I'm like, you know, to me, it's like, well, let's say you were driving down the highway and you saw a car crash. You know what you would do. You'd probably stop and you'd help people and you'd deal with that. And like, that's what it's like to be in a gunfight. I think that too often, and this goes outside the scope of veterans, I just think too often as like citizens, as people, you know, we're lazy about trying to understand one another when the reality is we have so much more in common than we're willing to acknowledge. You know, for instance, like coming home, I'm sure many veterans might identify with this, so like, you know, really good natured, well-meaning people have come up to me and said things like, wow, you know, I can't imagine what you went through over there. 
And I'm like, yeah, sure you can. You can imagine it. And I'll give examples like that, like a car crash or, or something of that respect. But I, the reason I feel so staunch to them about that, I'm like, listen, if you can't imagine what I went through, that means that the person I was when I left home for war has now been irredeemably altered. So I can never be that person again. Something has happened to me, so I can never be the person I was before I left home. If I can't go back to being the person I was before I left home, because you can't imagine what I went through, it means I never really get to go home. So it's sort of like, I need you to imagine what I went through so that I can kind of go back to being the person I was before I went home. Something else that Elliot said that I keep thinking about was that even though many of his books touch on the wars, they aren't about war at all. I asked him about his novel, Waiting for Eden, which is about a Marine wounded so badly in Iraq that he's barely clinging to life in a hospital bed. Waiting for Eden is not about the war, in my mind. I mean, listen, you if you read it and you feel like it is about the war, who am I to tell you what it's about? But I know the well that I was going to when I was writing that book, and it wasn't specifically the war. You know, the war is what puts Eden in the bed. But that book is about fidelity and friendship, fidelity in a marriage, what it means to to stay faithful to someone, and what it means to reckon with someone in your life, how you stay faithful to them once they've been diminished, as Eden is diminished. The war is what puts Eden in the bed, but the war is not the story. Where do the wars put us as a society and each of us as individuals? The machine. I need my fingers deep into the lore and spin the legacy around my wrists, ears. Is it me or the machine who forges war? Twisted knots entwined by fates, I pour crimson, a patina to grease the gears. I knead my fingers deep into the lore, my knuckles caked, nails silted with its gore. Sticky warmth boils blood, pumping tears. Is it me or the machine who forges war? Gallop by death, gallop on. Oh, ardor, clench the guts, evisceration nears. I need my fingers deep into the lore. Ferris yet fairly wrought, I steal valor, smelting to the quick or so human fears. Is it me? or the machine who forges war. Drag the breathless, rotting corpse. Abhor the finality, man who disappears. I need my fingers deep into the lore. Is it me or the machine who forges war? That poem, The Machine, was about Olivia's experience in Afghanistan, which she also discussed with us for today's show. I was over there supporting unmanned aircraft. I was helping with the networking, the structure of, of being able to, to work through the targeting cycle. And so looking at, you know, my participation and how does this work? And then what's the larger system that I'm operating under where I was not the one pulling the trigger, but I was certainly involved and to the point that, you know, when my portion, what I was helping with didn't work, we weren't able to pull the trigger, which has a certain kind of, of resonance to a part in a machine that's failed. And so trying to wrestle and think through all of those things, then coupling it with this very repetitive pattern where you have the same chorus come up that felt kind of like a, a machine turning to, to constantly be doing that. 
so it was kind of really cool to see that come out of, you know, like a very simple question that I was trying to wrestle with, like, how responsible am I for you know, what we were doing, good, bad, otherwise. This isn't an indictment of that. This is more of just what does it mean to participate in state-sanctioned violence? You know, if you're going to weigh the scales, how much actually goes in, in my part for that kind of participation, willing or otherwise? Elliot and Olivia focus on the experiences of war, on war's consequences for individuals. But understanding a war takes a long time and some serious study. Jim and I both knew we needed to talk to the brilliant Mara Carlin. Dr. Carlin is the Director of Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Mara is working on a book on what the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have meant for the United States military. We spoke with her in mid-April, and she told us she thinks the wars have created three crises for the military. A crisis of confidence, a crisis of caring, and a crisis of civilian control. So I've been doing a lot of work on a book, as you know, trying to look at what the military has inherited from being at war for nearly two decades. This is obviously the longest period in contemporary history that the military has been at war. And this is the longest period of time in contemporary U.S. history that the military has has been at war. And yet there's generally a whole lot of societal disinterest at best and lack of cognizance. And I think that's pretty worrisome that that most of American society doesn't really realize what's being done in its name. And I'm probably most nervous about the fact that we're just not talking about it a lot. And and the fact that the U.S. military has been at war for so long with such utterly inconclusive results isn't really a, a big topic of conversation. You know, what is striking to me, and this is both a story inside the military and vis-a-vis civilian counterparts, is you have constant reassessments, right? And Jim, I expect you were uh, a part of, of some of these when you were in Washington, but these kind of constant reassessments in these conflicts. And yet each time the, the answer is, well, just keep running at the problem, sometimes with a couple more resources or a couple, couple more folks. So I, I fear that this crisis of confidence means we know what we're doing. We don't need others to muck around in it. And yet deep down, we don't actually know what's going to help us get to victory. Something that bothers me about the way the U.S. military culture is processing the wars is that it assumes victory was only elusive because of civilian leadership. But that absolves the military from giving better advice or being more honest with itself and with its civilian leaders and the American public about the prospects for victory. Instead, it was, let's think about how we can make sure political leaders fight the wars we want them to fight or ask us to fight the wars we want them to fight. Yeah, I, I think that's a superb point. I mean, look, fundamentally, we know that the responsibilities put on the civilians are different than those in the military. And, you know, we obviously are all, of all cognizant of that. And yet, as you're saying, Jim, that doesn't mean that everyone else operated perfectly. It's why I think two of these crises bleed into one another, right? There's the sort of crisis of confidence of not really understanding what am I supposed to do and how am I supposed to do it? Because it kind of doesn't appear to be having an effect, it ties into this crisis of meaningful civilian oversight. There's just not a desire, I think, to accept it in in ways that are important because the view is, well, you messed up. So where does this blaming of civilians lead us? One thing Mara noticed was that the military officers she spoke to were dusting off something called the Powell Doctrine. The Powell Doctrine was actually a set of ideas that President Reagan's first Secretary of Defense laid out. 
That Secretary of Defense would be Casper Weinberger, the Weinberger Doctrine. As an aside, Powell was Weinberger's military assistant at the time. So the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine lays out criteria for the use of force. In a nutshell, if the U.S. is going to use the military, vital national security interests should be at risk, there should be clear objectives, and force should be used decisively. It was striking to hear the resurgence of the Powell Doctrine in the hundred or so interviews of overwhelmingly current and retired senior military leaders. I had not expected that. I also should note that I did not expect the Vietnam War to be cited so often among them, and that's probably its its own tale. I do fear the return of the Powell Doctrine because I think it's a pretty flawed and problematic doctrine insofar as you cannot ignore escalation and deterrence. And I do not think that it is either healthy or smart to try to detach operational level affairs from strategic policymaking and policy. Politics. But I do fear that those will be some of the lessons that folks will inherit. And that is really tied to this vision of the Ersatz victory. If I don't know what victory is because I can't figure out how to actually fix some of these dysfunctional places, which, by the way, is a whole lot larger than use of force being the key tool in our toolbox, then I've got to find other ways to define victory. And maybe victory is protecting my men. Maybe victory is not getting hurt. Maybe victory is knowing that I was able to work with this partner in X, Y, Z ways. Effectively, what I'm saying is victory is just a lot more superficial and, um, frankly, a lot fluffier compared to the, the broader kind of strategic understanding of victory that I think we might actually think of when we look back at, at sort of, you know, the world wars, for example. I think that's one of the dynamics that's fascinating to me is there was a clean end. You know, it was obviously not the end anyone wanted at the time, but it, there was a clean end to the Vietnam War. And after the war was over, then the military started figuring out what it was going to do next. I think what's fascinating to me now is we're trying to start that conversation while we're still at war. I think that is spot on. You know, in trying to write this book, I found it's both too soon and too late to write it. Can't figure out where to draw the chalk line. A couple of things I found really interesting. So you know, we've talked a lot about Iraq and Afghanistan, right? I've found in researching this book and in having these sorts of discussions, all of this bleeds together. It's like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Pakistan, et cetera, Djibouti, right? So, so unlike Vietnam, we can't even figure out like, when does this thing end and what's the geography on it? And I'm sure you both have had this experience, but I, I find that when you do engage in discussions with both civilians and people in the military about Vietnam, it's a little bit like attacking someone's puppy. There's just a lot of vitriol, a lot of sensitivity. It's a hard conversation to have. That's further evidence that it's, it's an important one. And this is literally, you know, four plus decades after it ended. And so I think about that with a little bit of a sober eye about how we will facilitate these hard and important discussions on the post 9-11 wars. Yeah, you saw in the Afghan papers that same, you know, hypersensitive response from folks like us, even folks who didn't deploy there, but who who worked on it or civilians we know who did go and serve in various civilian capacities 
you know, we all felt really, really personally about that set of articles. Absolutely. I think that personal element is so critical. And it's another kind of point worth highlighting when we think about what what sort of lessons folks takes from these wars. What you saw in these wars and you didn't see in sort of the large conflicts like the World Wars and the Persian Gulf War in the same way is this sort of intimacy with losses. So we're all familiar with the stories of the senior military leaders who have like the three by five cards of those who died under their leadership. You know, we all know the stories of the senior leaders who kind of keep those on their desk or carry them with them or make sure to read one each day. And and that sort of personalization of it, and frankly, we have civilian leaders as well. You know, Secretary of Defense Bob Gates writes about this a lot in his memoir and how kind of just emotional it was. I mean, that's really meaningful, right? That hits, I think, right at someone's core and is inevitably, in both, I think, positive and negative ways, going to shape them next time they're asked to give advice. I worry sometimes that one of the legacies of these seemingly endless wars is that Americans who aren't connected to the military in some way just look away, and that the reasons for looking away aren't only or necessarily because they're too busy shopping, but because they don't know how to engage with questions about the wars. When I returned from my second appointment, I went straight to graduate school. I definitely got the impression from some of my classmates that they just didn't know what to ask. In some cases, it seemed easier for both of us to try to avoid the real conversations about the war. And, you know, I think civilians have stories, too. One of the things I asked Elliot Ackerman about was his ability to write about civilians who didn't go to war but were witnesses to those who did. And he said, you know, in my mind, those are the people who are waiting for somebody else. And they're kind of reckoning with not only that person's loss, but how that loss affects them. We need to have that radical empathy Ackerman was talking about. If you enjoyed today's show, please share it with your friends on social media or give us a good review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you want to read more from our war storytellers today, you can find Olivia Garrard's poetry at therathbearingtree.com. You can find her other writings on the Strategy Bridge website, and you can find her on Twitter at T and Tactics. Elliot Ackerman's fifth novel, Red Dress in Black and White, came out in May. Alice and I also recommend his other books, particularly Waiting for Eden and Green on Blue. His memoir of his own experiences in the post-9-11 wars is called Places and Names. You can find Elliot on Twitter at Elliot Ackerman. Mara Carlin's first book is called Building Militaries in Fragile States. She's also written for Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, and War on the Rocks. We'll let you know when her book on the post-9-11 wars hits the stores. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time on Thank You for Your Service.